Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to bring you God's Word this morning. Uh, if you want to go ahead and turn to a passage, we're going to be spending a lot of time in Proverbs 5 to 7. We're walking through a series of wisdom, and this morning we're talking about sex. So uh, looking at all those issues that Proverbs talks about so much, and this is one of those. So welcome. And let me say just from the beginning, for those of you, if you don't know what's going on, no worries. Uh, but for those of you that have been caring for me and my family over the past couple of weeks, thank you for the ways that you've cared for us. And uh, thankful to say that the patient is mending. And uh, just continue to pray for him. And thank you for all the ways that you've expressed love and care to us. We felt so loved over the past week or so. I know my son has as well. So thank you for that. Such a joy to be part of a church that uh, cares for each other. But let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your love for us in Christ. Thank you, God, that you are a God that is not silent, but has spoken. Spoken to us for the welfare of our souls and the good of your glory. And so this morning we resist the devil that he might flee. And we welcome the presence of Christ. That we might walk down the path of freedom that leads to life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Well, how would you respond if someone asked you what it's like to breathe oxygen? Strange question. How would you respond if someone were to ask you what it's like to be a human being? Another strange question, right? And these questions are strange because with the exception of going under the water for a few seconds, we as humans, we do we don't really know what it's not like to be human or to not like to breathe, to breathe oxygen. It's all we've ever known. It's all we've ever done. In the same way, it'd be hard for a fish to describe what it's like to be in water. It's all they've ever known. Or an elephant, what it's like to have a trunk or a cloud, to know what it's like to float. It's all they've ever known. And so it is for us when it comes to the issue of sex. Our culture is as immersed in sex as fish is immersed in water. We are so inundated with sex like breathing, it's difficult to know what it's like to not be immersed by sex. From television to movies to advertisements and magazines, books, emails, social media feeds, schools, friends, podcasts, sex is ubiquitous around us. From cars to cameras to children's TV shows, sex is everywhere because, we, as we have been told, sex is sells. You can't even drive down the interstate without escaping the sexualization of something. And oftentimes it should be noted this sexualization oftentimes comes at the expense of women. And so consequently as a result of our immersion to a sexualized culture, we should acknowledge at the very beginning of the sermon that all of our consciences in some ways have been shaped by this culture that we live in. And one way or another, good or bad or right or wrong, given the total immersion of sex combined with the powerful allure of sex, we would be fools to believe that in some way or another we haven't adopted the patterns of the world around us in some way. More than likely, there are things that we all approve of or expect as basic rights, not because these things are objectively good or virtuous in and of themselves, or even that we've thought them through carefully but because our consciences have been so blunted by the inundation of material, making the, these ideas normalized, that they've created a kind of moral vision that makes the Bible's vision for sexuality strange or antagonistic or even boring. We are fish that swim in the waters of sexualization, and so it's difficult to know what actually is the real thing, isn't it? What is actually good? What is actually true? What is actually virtuous? What is wise? What is good for the shaping of humanity when it comes to sex? What is life? And so we're going to need someone removed from these sexualized waters to break in and show us sex as it was meant to be for our good and for God's glory. And thankfully we have that in Christ and His Word. So over the course of this summer, we're studying the book of Proverbs. At the beginning of this series, we had a couple sermons to just sort of orient us to the world of Proverbs and the teaching on wisdom. 
We've defined wisdom as joyfully applying God's truth for life. Joyfully applying God's truth for life. That's wisdom. And we set the foundation of what wisdom is, what wisdom does, who it's for. We've defined the kind of two paths that Proverbs says everybody is walking on. Path of folly, path of wisdom. And we've begun to apply this notion of wisdom to these different situations that we'll think about the rest of the summer. Last week, we thought about about applying wisdom to decision-making. Today, we're thinking about applying wisdom to sex. Next week, Chris Ambridge will be helping us apply wisdom to money. And on it goes throughout the rest of the summer. Big idea this morning is this. Sex can kill and sex can enliven. Discipline yourselves for life, not death. Sex can kill. That's the path of folly. Sex can enliven. That's the path of life. Discipline yourself for life, not death. Six points this morning to build a sexual ethic that leads to life and away from death. Six points. Here's the first. God made sex very good. God made sex very good. We, we should be honest at the very beginning of this. Christians have not always handled this conversation very good. Right? We, we understandably can be known for being against sex more than we are being made known to, for being for sex. With the inundation of sexual freedom everywhere, it makes sense why we'd be on the more defensive. Such that sometimes Christians can even feel, can even feel guilty for being pro-sex. I can remember one of my earliest experiences of one of my Christian friends getting married... I remember him telling me, we, we asked him after he'd been married for a time, we said, how's, how's sex, buddy? And he said, it's great, but I've got to be honest with you, I feel guilty because my whole life I've been told that it's bad or wrong. And so we as Christians need to remember that from the beginning, sex was God's idea and he called it very good. And so jumping out of the book of Proverbs, just keep your finger on Proverbs 5 there. Jumping out of the Proverbs, we take a look at the very beginning of the world, the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. We read there. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we have there male and female And emotionally, spiritually, and definitely biologically, physically, built to literally fit together so that they could then be fruitful, have children that would fill the world and make more worshipers of God. All of that is happening again through sex. And after all of this, after Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we read in Genesis 1, 31, God looked at all of this and said it was very good. And by the way, God can say that it's very good because he's the one outside of the waters. He's the one that is goodness in and of himself. Therefore, he's able to deem that which is good or bad or right or wrong. And he looks at the world, in particular, the notions relating to male and female having sex to fill the world up with worshipers. He says, very good, very good. But it is only very good inside of the covenantal confines with which he made it of marriage. We read that in Genesis 2, the very next chapter, verse 24 to 25, where it says there, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed, and were not ashamed. So in other words, what we have there is we have leave the family unit. Two people leave the family unit to create a new family, to become one flesh. Again, that's emotional, that's spiritual, as it is reflected in the physical ability to be one flesh. And this, friends, is why Christians opposed so-called gay marriage, because they're unable to do this. They're unable to be one flesh. But also, notice the very good nature of the sexual marital union, by the two of them being naked and unashamed. And you know that you are at peace and in harmony with one another when you could be naked and unashamed with a spouse. And so God uniquely designed marriage as the environment for men and women to come together in a one flesh union so that they could then in that 
covenantal union, they could be naked and unashamed. It's the safe, happy, flourishing, and very good space for sex. Until mankind rebelled against God and went outside of those confines. Maintaining the still goodness of sex and marriage. But then in rebellion against God, he goes outside of those confines and takes something good and twists it and makes it bad outside of that confine. So in Genesis 3, when sin enters into the world, we quickly see how sex, like everything else, is used for harm. For selfish and destructive purposes. The Bible puts this on full blast. It moves quickly into the evil environment of places like Sodom and Gomorrah. To what we saw when we walked through the book of Kings, right? Solomon with his hundreds of wives and concubines. To what we saw at the very ending of Kings. Do you remember that? When they had male cult prostitute houses right there in the temple complex. Sexual sin is one of the most common and grievous realities of the Old Testament. They're on full blast to display what happens when you get sex wrong. The Bible is so clear about that. As Judges says, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, particularly with sex, which brought confusion and destruction everywhere. We read that in the Old Testament. Taking something God made very good and still is good in that confines, mankind pulled it outside of its safe and beautiful confines to other places for one's own pleasure. We read in the New Testament in Romans 1, 24 and 25, God gave them, mankind, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so God's passive judgment, what we call it, God's passive judgment, He just lets a people have their way with sex. And that's a way in which He judges a people. And that's what we've seen throughout human history. From the days of the writing of the book of Romans... In the Roman Empire, down to the Victorian era, to the 1960s, to our own day, in our own nation. God's very good gift of sex has been perverted in a thousand ways for a thousand generations in a thousand different places. It's been destructive. So it's common in every civilization in the world. And this sexual sin that is so common to read is of a deeper nature. The Bible makes it clear that this sexual sin is a, of a deeper nature than other sins. We read that in First. Corinthians chapter 6, because it's a sin against body and soul. Revelation even calls sexual immorality, quote, the dark things of Satan. Revelation 2.24. But remember, that was not the way things were supposed to be. God made male and female coming together in the marital union as a one flesh union that was very good. It was a very good thing such that people could be naked and unashamed. Again, that remains the case till today. But it was the sensual self that took God's very good creation, twisted it in on itself so that now, unlike a fire in a fireplace, able to soothe and to warm because it's been controlled, now sex is being seen and used outside the fireplace and is able to spread into the forest and bring destruction, oftentimes in the name of freedom. Therefore, friends, when Jesus came to redeem us from sin, sex was part of that. Jesus lived a sexually pure life, and therefore, as the true and good heavenly husband, he sacrificed himself on the cross for the sexual sins of all those that trust and treasure him. Jesus loved his wife, the church, and washed her with the water of the word by taking her sin, by taking our sin on the cross and giving us, giving her, giving his wife, his righteousness, such that we could be naked and unashamed with Christ in that purity because he had paid for that sin. And now in his resurrection, we who are in Christ have his new life deposited to us by the Spirit. Meaning that when Jesus says, I have come that you have, might have life and have it to the full, that included sex. Christ has and is redeeming sex. He means to give us the fullness of joy in all things, but in particular sex. 
he has and continuing make it good inside of that kind of fireplace as it was intended to be between a man and a woman in the marital covenant so that now they can be naked and unashamed. So it's important to remember right from the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ redeems us from every bad and takes us to the very good of sex. Sex is God's idea and he calls it very good. Therefore, when we lay out a sexual ethic, we do so as a way of living inside. The reason why, if you're not a Christian and wonder why Christians have this sexual ethic, is because we believe that Jesus' way is the way of life. We're trying to live inside of that sexual ethic because we believe that's the good life, because Jesus is good. Second point. Therefore, since God made sex very good, we need to get wisdom on sex. We need to get wisdom on sex. Since we know God made sex very good, and since we know that sex has been used to bring a whole lot of bad, and as we just read, it can be used as a form of judgment upon a people, and even more, since we are steeped ourselves in an overly sexualized culture, we had better get wisdom on sex. And not just passively take in what's going on around us. Remember, as we have learned so many times in Proverbs, fools despise wisdom and instruction. But as those of us that fear the Lord, we are endeavoring to come up under his good and faithful teaching. And so returning into Proverbs, there you can open it up to Proverbs chapter 5 to 7. There's a lot going on there. Proverbs is speaking a lot about sex inside of those three chapters. And in those three chapters, we get a ton of references of wisdom in relation to sex. A ton of calls to go get wisdom on sex. In those three chapters alone, there are, th- there are 12 references that reference some need to go and get wisdom in relation to sex. You can see there, get wisdom, it says, get understanding, get insight, get discretion, knowledge, words, instructors, teachers, or commandments. All of that is there. I just quoted all those 12 references in reference to getting wisdom for sex. I'll give you one example of it. At the very beginning of this in Proverbs 5, 1 to 3, Solomon writing to his son says, quote, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. And we think about the one that doesn't try to get wisdom in relation to sex. We read in Proverbs 5.13, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instruction. Get wisdom, get knowledge, get discretion, get insight from teachers that will give you God's good and gracious commands, those that fear the Lord, to help you walk in the way of life when it comes to sex. This is something, guys, that we are going to have to discipline ourselves to do because the basic message of our moment is to indulge the flesh when it comes to sex. Indulge it. That's what what we're being told. There are very few things in the patterns of the world around us that would tell you to say no to something in relation to sex. And there are a million loud voices telling you that not only should you indulge the flesh, but you deserve it. Or even more often now, indulge the flesh, indulge the flesh because it's, quote, who you are. As we find ourselves even in the midst of a month that is using the word pride. One of the seven deadly sins of Proverbs is using the word pride to celebrate sexual sin. Which the Bible calls foolishness. Foolishness, we learn from Proverbs, doesn't ponder paths. Proverbs 5, 6, in reference to the forbidden sexual woman, quote, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. That's a deadly combination, guys. Sexual allure that doesn't even think about life. They're not trying to even think through it carefully. And her ways wander. They just sort of go all over the place. And they don't even realize it. They're not even aware of the fact that they haven't thought about it. And they're just wandering around not thinking about it. Unhindered sexual allure never even thinks about what's wise with sex. And it wanders around and doesn't even realize it. That's what it's doing. Therefore, if you and I are going to walk the path of wisdom. If you and I are going to know the abundant life of Christ and walk in it. You and I must be vigilant. We're going to have to discipline ourselves to get knowledge, get wisdom, get insight on sex. Everything in and around you is telling you to not think about it. Just do as you please. 
And that should send alarm bells off in us going, no danger. That doesn't sound right. No, I need to get some wisdom. I need to get some insight on this and not just go along. Don't just do whatever one else is doing, whatever the patterns of the world is telling you. Wise men and women, Proverbs teaches us, Christians, that is, bought by the blood of Christ, they see the intoxication of the forbidden woman all around us, and they say in our heart, I've got to get some wisdom on this. I need to get some discretion. I need some knowledge. I need to understand better. That's what we say if we're endeavoring to be wise and walk those ancient paths. I need wisdom because I'm swimming in dangerous waters. God help me. And so the question for us this morning is, are you getting wisdom on sex? Are you getting wisdom on it? Maybe even you're in this moment. You're like, I wish I didn't have to sit through this sermon. Well, friend, that's a problem. You need to get wisdom on sex. Have you read books or articles to try to help you understand the things going on around us? Press it against a biblical worldview. There are books down in our bookstall you can go and get at cost to help you think these things through. We talked about wise counsel. Come talk to pastors. Talk to friends. Are you getting wisdom? Are you searching the scriptures? Are you praying? Or have you just gone along with whatever one else is saying, whatever is easiest and whatever is acceptable? Brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors in a world that is so consumed by sex and with so much at stake in sex, we must get wisdom, we must get understanding, we must get knowledge and not be blown around by whatever wind of doctrine is going on. And we must get it because third, God's commands are the way to life. God's commands are the way to life. We've seen so far that God made sex very good. Uh, we've seen that in our selfishness we can use, uh, use it and exchange the truth about God for a lie and indulge to the point of perverting the something into something God made good. We pervert it into something bad. Therefore, since we're inundated with this perversion, Proverbs tells us to go get knowledge, get wisdom, get understanding. Why? Because God's commands are the way to life. Take a look at Proverbs 6, verse 20 to 24. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman. From the smooth tongue of the adulterer. So parents, let me just say this briefly. Parents, notice these truths are meant primarily to come from you to your kids. Did you notice that? And kids that are here this morning, notice the primary place for your instruction that leads to life in relation to all things, but in particular sex, is not schools. And it's not even me. It's your parents. And we learn there in that passage... That these commandments, these teachings, will you see what it says? They are to be bound to our hearts. Bound to our hearts. Tied around your neck. Such that when you walk or lie down or when you're awake, in other words, all the time, they will lead you, it says. They will watch over you. They will talk with you. Why? It says to preserve you from the evil woman with her smooth words and alluring words. And because they, the commands and the teachings of godly parents, they are instructing you in God's words, which are a lamp, it says, which are a light to the way of life. It helps you know in all of the darkness and the craziness and the confusion. It's the light that shows you where the path is. I love that image of binding the commandments and the teachings on the heart, the wellspring of your life. It's your engine. It's not your mind. We live in a place that thinks our mind's the engine. It's not. All right? The way I can prove that is, is do you do all the things you say are right? No. Right? We are what we love. We're not primarily what we think. Bind these teachings on your heart. Right? The image here is like soldering polarized sunglasses on the eyes of your heart. Right? Polarized sunglasses sift out all of the glare and all of the strain of the eyes so that you can see clearly. That's what polarized sunglasses do. And so that's what binding God's word on your heart does. It sifts out all of the bad and helps you see clearly the good so that you'll not walk the path of death and instead walk down the path of life. It's a little silly. Matter of fact, I've tried to get rid of this saying, but it keeps coming back up, so I'll say it. 
<clears throat> but friends, it's sort of like putting on gospel goggles, right? Seeing through the gospel at all times. Because that's our life. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, when we see through the gospel, we see the splendor, we see the beauty, we see the majesty of Christ and His righteousness. We see the wonder of heaven. We see all of the good of God through those gospels, through that gospel lenses. And we see also the bad, therefore, the dirtiness. Whereas the commands of secularism the commands of expressive individualism, and they are commands, or, or, or even the kind of commands of a kind of neutered Christianity that happens to look very similarly to the cultural moment around us. Their commands, their knowledge, don't appear to be creating a society of human flourishing. But instead, it seems to be creating human enslavement to one's own desires. And so, friends, we need liberation We need liberation, not to our passions, but instead liberation to the passion of Christ and the gospel that frees us from ourselves and to the good and the gracious design for his good, for our good and his glory. And that's what we have in the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God's word doesn't attempt to accommodate us. It's honest with us. God's word does not attempt to accommodate us, but instead to recreate us into the image of the most beautiful person that ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus. Our hope and our great reward. And so get wisdom, get knowledge on sex because we are being discipled every single day on sex. And get it from the knowledge and the commands of God's word because that's our life. Search the scriptures, bind them to your heart like sunglasses so that you would see through them to the life of Christ. Do this and you will live, do it not and you will die. Proverbs 5.23 says, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. And so friends, we must discipline ourselves in the delicious doctrines of our deliverer. Because we also know, fourth, sensuality deceptively seduces. Sensuality deceptively seduces. Take a look in the book of Proverbs of how the forbidden woman, representing sinful sexuality, notice how she's represented. Notice the strong use of sexual or sensual imagery. Look at Proverbs 5.3. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. Proverbs 6.25, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Proverbs 7.10, she's dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. 7.11, she's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. 7.13 and 14, she seizes him and kisses him and with bold face says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I've paid my vows. In other words, what we read there is she seduces him and then assures him that she's religious. She says, I'm a Christian. I went to church today. I took the Lord's Supper. We're good. Everything's okay. There's nothing to be had here. I'm just kissing you. Isn't this great? Proverbs 7, 15, it says, so now I have come to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. And there, friends, the forbidden woman illustrates someone that makes us feel desirable. And doesn't all of us want to feel desired? So the forbidden woman plays upon that. Proverbs 7, 16 to 21. Powerful image here. Notice the sensual image all over the place. I have spread my couch. This is the forbidden woman talking. I have, uh, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He, he took a bag of money with him. At, at full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. It's powerful, isn't it? Powerful imagery. It's safe. Nobody's going to be around. Nobody's going to know. It's going to be awesome. Come on. The seductive sensuality, friends, is off the charts here. I love how the Bible represents that so clearly. 
The forbidden woman, it says, is loud, is smooth, is beautiful, is religious, enough to make it feel okay. She paints captivating images of her home and makes it safe for him knowing he won't get caught. And guys, it's powerful because it's sensual. Our senses are God's good gifts to us. Can you imagine a world without senses? Thank God for senses. God, senses are God's good gift. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. These are wonderful gifts that God uses to help us to enjoy God and enjoy his world. They're powerful because they make us not just know something with our minds. Our senses are great because they help us know them down deep and feel them down deeply. And so the evil one knows this well to then bypass the mind and go straight to the senses as Savior. Sensuality is the savior because what it does is it bypasses that pesky thing we call conscience. Something that God gave us for our good. Sensuality is savior because it bypasses that pesky thing called conscience that keeps us from our joy. At least that's what we're told, right? And sensuality as savior is said to save because it allows us to live in the moment. And not use that conscience, which is, we're told, trying to bind us. And this is the problem. Remember Proverbs 5, 6. Forbidden woman does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. So the person that's deceived, they don't realize they're deceived because they're deceived. Sensuality as savior is foolish because it doesn't ponder life, doesn't know truth. It wanders around, it does as it feels, and it doesn't give any thought. Because again, the evil one's going around it, going around the conscience, going around the mind. And so while it feels right and good and pleasurable in the moment, like that extra scoop of ice cream, it feels awful an hour later because of the sugar rust that you got too much of. Right? So if only we could have the feeling that we have after indulging the flesh, if we could just have that moment before we indulge the flesh, it would be amazing how often we would choose the right thing. Right? But again, that's how Satan works. He knows that. He knows that. He deceives. He, he plays upon sensuality. Uh, right as it is the basic nature that God is love, Jesus says in John 8 that the basic nature of the evil one is to be deceptive. To lie. That's his basic nature. That's sort of how he rolls. He doesn't know how not to be deceptive. And by the way, he's really good at his job. He's very good at it. And he's very powerful. And so as one author says, when you are tempted, Satan will minimize Christ's beauty. And then after you sin, he'll minimize Christ's mercy. That's what he does. Before sin, he'll tempt you to believe that repentance is easy. After sin, Satan will tempt you to believe that repentance is impossible. Thomas Burke's writing 500 years ago says, quote, He will present the bait and hide the hook. Present the golden cup and hide the poison. Present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and then by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. Sensuality as Savior, friend, is terrible because it lies to you. It makes you to believe that you will be satisfied if you give in. And yet all it does is leave you happy for a moment and forever dissatisfied for a lifetime. Sensuality as Savior is never satisfied because it always wants more. Compare that to Jesus Christ as Savior, the one of whom is always satisfied in and of himself and graciously invites you into his always satisfied life because he is the I am. He has no need of anything outside of himself to satisfy himself. That's why the gospel is so satisfying. But if you stay away from Christ and follow the forbidden woman, you'll not only have death, you'll not only have that sort of in unsatisfied feeling, you'll also have death. Fifth point, you have death. Sensuality seductively deceives to death. Sensuality seductively deceives to death. That's where it's going. Take a look. So many verses here. Here we go. 
Proverbs 5, 4 to 5. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to shale. Shale representing death. Proverbs 5, 11 to 14. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And when you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. Instructors, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Proverbs six twenty nine. So he goes into so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Proverbs six thirty two and thirty three. He who commits adultery lacks sense. Adultery is sex outside of marriage in any way. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. In Proverbs 7.23, it says of the one that follows sensuality's seductive woman to sin, he follows her and it says, and he does not know that it will cost him his life. Isn't that awful? He goes and he eats the cotton candy, not realizing that it'll kill him. But it tasted good. Proverbs 7.26 Many a victim has she laid low, forbidden woman. Many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. In other words, she's got a whole lot of victims. A few stats to back that up. According to one study, over 40 million Americans regularly view pornography. 40 million. One adult website boasts 120 million viewers a day. Sexual exploitation is the number one reason for human trafficking. And there are now more than 20 million people trafficked. According to another study, by age 20... 75% of Americans have had premarital sex. You map those stats onto the rise of divorce, abortion, suicide, drug and alcohol, abuse, as well as depression, and evidently the wisdom of Proverbs is spot on. Many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. If you ever wonder, why do I believe the Bible, friends? Two reasons. One, because I love Jesus and trust Jesus. He loved the Bible. Two, it sounds exactly like the world I live in. Our so-called freedoms are not working. Nobody's going to tell you that. But it's so evidently true. And most of us in the world know it's not working. And God's word graciously helps you see why it's not working. Sex was never designed to be very good outside the way in which God designed it. Proverbs 7.27, the the forbidden woman's house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Friends, this is the wisdom that you and I need. Sensuality as the seductive Savior only enslaves and destroys. It will never satisfy you because it always wants more. I can think of a, a brother in a church that I was sent from years ago whose job was to track down folks of a sexual nature. And he said every single time when you got to know these folks, it always started with just a little bit of porn. And it led to these terrible places. And meanwhile, Christ offers us life. Beautiful life that demands discipline, that demands dying to death and not living to our passions but he offers us life and so friends if you are enslaved in secret sexual sin if that's you this morning tell somebody yes it will be hard but we'll walk with you we'll walk with you in the light of Christ's life don't keep it secret it's hard to drag it into the light but it's good things thrive in the darkness but they die in the light If you are living in some sexual secret sin, I'm pleading with you out of the name of Christ and then the love of Christ, drag it into the light. Let us walk with you through it. 
God made sex very good. In our following the deceitful destruction of a seduction of sensuality, we are led to death. Therefore, we need to get wisdom if we are going to know the abundant life of Christ. And so now let me end here with a couple practical insights that Proverbs offers us. I could give ten. I'm going to give you the two that Proverbs, Proverbs offers. So at the street level, how does Proverbs teach us to walk in the life of Christ? At the street level, how does Proverbs help us to walk in the path of life and not the path of wisdom? Two ways that Proverbs offers us. Here's the first. Don't go near places and at times you know you'll be seduced. That's the first piece of wisdom that Proverbs offers. Don't go near places at times you'll know you'll be seduced. Listen to Proverbs 5.8. Keep your way from her. And do not go near the door of her household. Proverbs 7, 6 to 9. I have seen the simple. I have perceived among the youths a man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. See, one of the things to help, if, you're wanna, if you want to be some of those that help sexual strugglers, is to ask them when and where they struggle the most. You're going to find out oftentimes there's a pattern. When and where they struggle the most. More often than not, it's people not keeping their way from the forbidden woman or forbidden man, for that matter. They do go near her household at all the wrong times, at night and darkness, when it seems like they won't be seen. Wisdom says, don't go near. Don't even get close. And especially don't go close at the times you know you'll be tempted. Wisdom says, don't lack sense by passing along her corner. Especially at times and places when it's easy to be taken down. I can remember a brother that I walked with. He said there was a street at the school he went to. And he just knew what he would see. And so he literally would go extra blocks around just so he didn't have to walk down that street. That's wisdom. Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Of course not. You can't hold fire right here and not get the shirt burned. So don't go near places that at times you'll be taken down. And so for some of you, that means you don't read any of those fantasy novels. Get rid of those books. This afternoon, go burn them. Throw them away. For others of you, that means you get rid of the smartphone and make it a dumb phone. I'm not kidding. This is totally true, right? That thing that you have is not a right. And most of the time, it's not needed like you think you need it. There are other ways to do things. As Jesus said, if your hand or foot is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He says, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Get rid of the phone. You cannot try and manage your sin. It won't work. It's too powerful. You've got to kill it. You've got to do everything in your power by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, through the work of the church, to kill the sin, not manage it. Remembering the whole time. You're not just putting off. You're putting on. Putting on the life of of Christ. You believe, right, Christian? You believe Christ is life. That's the thing you've got to keep clear. And that's the thing that we Christians haven't always done a good job of. It's not just get rid of that, stop it, stop it, stop it. It's no, because Christ is good. When I was dating my wife, I was like, whatever it takes, I can go on another date with you. That's what I'll do. Because I was allured by our beauty. That's what we do. We're allured by the beauty of Christ. That's why we put off to put on the beauty of Christ. Don't go near places at times that have proven to kill your soul. Second point of practical application. Final, we'll end here. Delight in what is yours. Delight in what belongs to you. Delight in what is yours, not in what is not yours. Proverbs 5, 15 to 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. 
Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Did you see that? Did you hear that? The Bible says, be full at all times with delight. And be intoxicated always in her love. God is pro-sex. He's totally for it. We've got a whole book in the Bible that you're going to be embarrassed to read. It's fantastic, right? God is pro-sex. He's for it. Always be intoxicated with it. Solomon tells his son here to find his intoxication, though, with the wife of his youth. Not someone else's wife. Or someone else's husband, for that matter. And if you're wondering, are they my wife or my husband? Are you married to them? Okay, then they're not yours. Therefore, be it lust in our hearts and minds or physical adultery, male or female, outside the covenant of marriage, all of these are trying to get you to delight in what is not yours. He wants us, God wants us to enjoy what is ours. Husbands and wives being known, being loved, being respected, being able to be naked and unashamed. He wants that for us. He wants us to be intoxicated with that love. Again, we put that whole book in the Bible called Song of Songs. It's about this. So enjoy it, but do so within the confines of marriage, that which is yours. Don't try and get it outside of marriage because you will then be taking what is not yours and using it for yourself. Taking something beautiful and making it ugly. And to the singles in the room, I realize at this point you're going, yeah, that's what I want, but I don't have that. I get it. Friends, I spent more than half of my life as a single man. I remember that struggle. It's a hard struggle. It's a very difficult struggle. But beloved single brothers and sisters, remember that truth that Joey so helpfully captivated for us. That while marriage shows the shape of the gospel, singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. Don't forget that. And so insofar, single beloved Christians, insofar as you are fighting to keep your ways pure, Christian singles, you are an example to us that are married every single day. You teach us. You instruct the rest of us. We all have something to give up. Every single person... Every single person gives something up to follow Christ. And you that are single and desire to be married have to give up something significant. But you show us, the rest of us marrieds, the sufficiency of Christ. And so I say on behalf of the married people, thank you. Please keep going. Show it to us that Christ is worth all. Keep going, singles. Don't give in. Show the sufficiency of Christ to us as you have. Because we all need to be reminded of the sufficiency of Christ as life. Marriage is not life. Sex is not life. Christ is life. Christ is life. And in a hyper-sexualized culture, we of all people have to keep that at the front of our minds. We have to, as wisdom says, bind it on our hearts. We have to remind ourselves, one another, and our neighbors of Colossians 3, 4. We're speaking to Christians. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And beloved, on that day, when we will put on a pleasure that the greatest sex in the world can't even hold a candle to, we will see him of whom our soul loves. We will see our heavenly husband. We will see the fountain of love, the one that has loved us perfectly and is safe and is pure. The one that bled for us, for our sins, all of our sexual sins. The one that took them all away. The one that is making us new. The one that we trust and treasure in faith. The one that completes us. He's our life. Find strength and hope and joy in him. I end with this quote from one pastor slash author. He says this. He says, we must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust, sinful pleasures must be bought, must be fought with the fires of God's righteous pleasures. 
If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, in other words, just stop it, I'll try harder. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust, pleasure, and the conflagration of holy satisfaction that's seen in Jesus. We must find Christ as life, and we help each other on towards that end. Knowing that there's more grace in Him than there is sin in us. More joy in Him than there is anywhere else. Sex can kill. Sex can enliven. Discipline yourselves in the life of Christ and live forever in His joy. Let's pray together. Father, there are some here this morning that are victims to these things, to these sexual sins. Others of us have been perpetrators in some way, shape, or form. In some way, all of us have been touched by the forbidden woman. What a joy to consider that we have the offer of a heavenly husband that will be safe with us, that will heal us, that will mend us, that will direct us down the way of wisdom that leads to life and away from the folly of death. Thank you that Jesus is life, that he covers all of our sins, that he was punished so that we don't have to be. Oh God, in the gospel, help us to see the wisdom, the insight, the power, the allure of Christ, our hope and great reward. May we walk down that path. It's hard, God. It's hard. Some of us may have to pay a price for walking that road. But let us remember that, Jesus, that you paid for it first. We thank you for this offer. We thank you for the power of the freedom that's in Christ, in whose name we pray.